Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Barry Gleason, uh, strategic coach, uh, advisor, and we're going to talk about, you know, scaling up a company and preparing it for exit, man. Thank you for being on the show today. My pleasure, Ron. Thanks for having me. Let's just jump right in. Like, how did you get into this space? What's your origin story? You know, kind of can tell us how how you got started. Well, it's not um, consecutive, that's for sure. I spent 15 years in corporate America uh, working for a defense contractor, and I wore many hats at that company. Without that background, I probably couldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So it gave me a really big appreciation for how businesses run in a very sophisticated environment. But I frankly, Ron, got choked on the politics and I left and I went to work for a vendor of ours and I became a sales guy and I sold material handling equipment. Um, I'm in Missouri, so covered half the state and uh, enjoyed that and did well with it, did quite well. And uh, and then the uh, owner of the business, third generation approached me and asked me if I wanted to be an uh, operations manager and I took that role and and then soon became general manager and vice president of the company. And in the process of that, I met a gentleman um, that was a franchisee for the Alternative Board, which is an international franchise organization for peer executive uh, groups and executive coaching. And I was intrigued with that. And after my time with the material handling company, I started on my own. So it was eight years with that company. And I started my own business working with privately held businesses in 04. And I've been doing that ever since. And I've seen a lot and learned a lot along the way. Um, and after I started that business on my own, my ex-partner who ran the franchise approached me and asked if I wanted to join. I, I did. And uh, long story short, I became a coach working with privately held businesses outside of the niche that I was in, which was business development, and did that for several years. And he asked if I wanted to be a succession plan. And I really loved the work and I really loved working with small businesses. And, and I did. So we ended in, entered into a stock purchase agreement. And um, several years into that, actually about eight years into that, um, that all concluded last year and I bought my partner out. But I came upon the Scaling Up organization, which I'm fascinated, I was fascinated with, and I ended up joining as a strategic growth coach. So the Scaling Up organization is a coaching body worldwide. There's about 200 of us in the country or in the world. Um, We help companies implement the Rockefeller habits. So maybe you've heard of that. Uh, it, It got launched in 2002 under the book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. And that morphed into a second book, an update called Scaling Up. It's very popular, and uh, it's turned into a whole program and, and a community of coaches that work with privately held businesses. So my focus now is still working with privately held businesses, but really in the spirit of helping them get to an exit point in their business. All of us will exit someday, some way. I want to make that um, transaction the, the most it can be. So that's how I got here. So it sounds like a very logical kind of progression. You you know, went from management to advisement to seeing a problem in succession planning, working in that realm, and then like the part of part of truly succeeding your business or you know you know selling it, doing something with somebody else's 
there, there's a big element of scaling it to where you want to be to hit your exit goals. So I, I see that's a very logical progression on how you, how you, you know, fit into what you did next. I don't think if you looked at mine, it'd look more like an ADD kids uh, chart of coloring or something. Cause I jumped around from it to marketing of all things to real estate and then into the acquisitions. So uh, I, I like, there's a logical and, and, reasonable path or <laughs> that you made it through let's talk about like what kind of drew you into that because i i, I kind of know there's some real very interesting complexities when somebody says okay i think it's time to to do something else or hey i have to retire and in the next few years as you were getting into the next succession plan what led you to looking at like being a scaling up coach uh well i'm Always had high ambition about business. I'm very passionate about business. Um, even back in high school, the both tech school that I went to, allowed a business uh, focus. So I've always been fascinated with it. My parents opened a Radio Shack, which we turned into a business called the Stereo Place uh, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, a little small town. And that was a blast. And I was a young man, uh, young teenager. And that really gave me a flavor of running my own business. And so that's always been a dream of mine. So when I was able to work with small businesses, it was the next best thing, right? And so when I joined the alternative board, um, those peer groups that I run, and I've got five of them currently running, um, mm -hmm. we have about 40 different business owners, all mostly all B2B, that are in diverse industries. So I'm not industry specific, I'm industry agnostic. But I saw all these businesses struggle, and, and the dream of having a business and the riches that it brings and the freedom is a, it's a myth. It, it just, it exists out there, but it's very rare for that to happen. So I saw a lot of these businesses just struggle and I wanted to help them. Uh, so the purpose of my business is really to help business owners have a better life. And, uh, and so I, anything and everything that contributes to them running a better business, having the right people, doing the right things, scaling it to where it's attractive to a buyer and even short of a sale, just having the benefit of business that's healthy uh, versus struggling with it um, was very appealing to me. And, and as I did that, I saw that most of these owners were struggling and, and it wasn't great. They were working long hours and making sacrifices that are mostly unknown by the general public. And uh, I was very sympathetic to that. And, uh, and so I wanted to help. And so I, I see this diversity. I see it today, frankly, in every meeting I go to a lot of these business owners are not, um, they're not focused on the future. They're focused on putting out fires today. And that's a real mistake. For all the business owners listening, please consider the future because day-to-day um, -day will take care of itself generally, but the future is only going to happen if you make it happen. It's interesting in the fact that if you're in the day-to-day -day operations and you don't take a second to step back, sometimes you just don't. And I know that I've been in positions where I didn't realize that all I was doing was putting out fires. Right. It's not until you sit down and like, you know, work with somebody to and they're saying, hey, let's look at a strategic plan for the next six months to 12 months to, you know, 24, 48 months. And uh, they start looking at that and realizing that you might have done it before. But you, you know, when you get back to the office, you put out whatever fires, you know, the biggest one in front of you in the moment. So uh, you and I were just briefly talking before the show and it's like the uh, the old fable is somebody calls us and says hey i'd like to sell my business it's like cool you've been prepared for the last three to five years a lot of people don't understand that there's a process going from 
for most for yeah. most businesses, I would say probably in the high ninety percent of businesses out there do not run their day to day operations as if they're trying to sell it. And it's two different modes of operation. Your day to day operations, if you're just a you know small mom pop company, let's just say if you're doing less than ten million dollars in revenue, your day to day operations are to you know maximize the uh, the growth of the company and minimize your taxes, right? Well, that plays against you when you go put this thing on the market because, you know, every buyer like myself and all the other guys, we're looking at seller's discretionary earnings. We're looking at your profit. And if you've been tucking it away and hiding it and everything else, um, you know, you can't just unfold it and say, well, ta-da, here it is. <laughs> right? So, um, and there's a balancing act too. There's, um, you know, you, you don't want to run it so, you know, push the profit so hard that you, you can't make, you know, make it cause the taxes are killing you either. So. No, I understand, but I'll, I'll share with you um, a saying that I picked up along the way and I love it. Uh, I'm not the originator of it, but it's revenue is vanity. Mm -hmm. Profit is sanity and cash is king. Mm -hmm. And I see most 95% of business owners, when you ask them how's business, they focus on the revenue side of the business and not the profit side of the business. And, and I've worked with several companies that at the end of the year, they look at what they made and it was nothing. They covered all the expenses, but they made nothing. And it's like, well, your business is worth nothing. And so how those 70, 80 hour work weeks feel when you did that? So it, it's, it's a real thing. It's not uncommon for companies to like focus on revenue, 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 and not on profit margin because, you know, they think they're going to, you know, you know, First of all, they're still putting out fires, right? So they need to make that next sale so they can have the money to buy the inventory for the next, you know, order or whatever, you know, game that's going on inside of there. But uh, what is the, like, I know you were talking about the Rockefeller uh, concepts and stuff like that and the book Scale Up. Give us some of the points, like the, the, the top ones off the top of your mind. What's most important? Well, I think the easiest place to start would be the four uh, key pillars, if you will, of scaling up. It, mm. it focuses on people. Mm -hmm. You have the right people in the right seat on the bus doing things right. They may be doing, well, I'm, I should have said doing the right thing. You can mm -hmm. do the things right, but if it's not the right thing, it's not going to be productive. Um, and a question I ask for clients that I work with and prospects is, would you enthusiastically rehire all of the people that are on your team? And if the answer is no, and I usually get an emotional blank no, um, well, there's a problem because if you don't have the right people, you can't execute well, and that erodes the profits. The second pillar is strategy. And, and the intent there is, can you drive your revenue um, sustainably to where it's consistent and predictable, which is vital for a buyer if you get to the point of selling the business. The buyers are going to look for sustainable, predictable revenue. And if the answer is no there, then you're doing something wrong. It, it could be that you aren't differentiated or you're in the wrong market or you're selling too much to too many. Um, any number of things could occur there. The third pillar is execution. And that is, are you generating industry-leading profits? And you can benchmark your business. And I advise all of my clients, go to your CPA, go to your bank, ask them for data. Uh, they have it in a variety of forms to compare you against your peers. A bank uses it so they want to understand that are your financials healthy as compared to your peers. 
and so that information is vital to have so you can operate. And if you're above industry average on your profits, not only are you making money and having a better time and, and stronger in, in the marketplace, but you're going to be more valuable to a buyer. And then the fourth pillar is cash. You, do you have enough cash to fuel your own growth or are you cash strapped? And uh, obvious, many things contribute to that. So at a highest level, having the right people, having an effective strategy, being able to execute and have the discipline of that execution, and then managing cash, those are the fundamentals. Yeah, I've seen companies where the um, like cash flow management could absolutely kill them. I was uh, there. I was talking to a company that's cyclical. They have a, a particular part of the year that's really busy. And um, I asked them, do you know, do you know what a cash, because they didn't have very good books at all. I said, do you know what a cash flow analysis is? And he says, well, I kind of know what it is. So I take it by that. You don't have one to hand me. And he's like, no. I said, is there a part of the year you have to prepare for? And he says, what do you mean? I said, it sounds like you have a part of the year. They're really busy. You're in the slow part of the year. Do you lay people off or how do you do it? He goes, no, I absolutely know that by September 1st, I need, I thought the number was in the 400, 500K of cash on hand because we're going to have a slow cycle and that's what it takes to pay everybody through that cycle, right? You know, but me as a buyer, if I didn't happen to ask that question and he doesn't have cash flow analysis, you could buy this company, think it's doing great in the spring, you know, and reinvest in growth and the capital and equipment. And then it's going to find out in the fall, you can't pay everybody because that money needed to sit still because, you know, unless you're going to you know, rehire, retrain, or, you know, do the game of scaling up, scaling down on staff that the company, you know, needs that cash to manage the year. So uh, what other, what are, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. What other areas inside of the, uh, the scaling up and the, uh, well, what are the things you see that, that can help a company? Alignment. Having clarity between what the leaders see and what everybody else sees. Um, I'll share with you a really fun but effective question. Uh, let's say you're running your business and you've got direct reports and they have direct reports. I'll ask you to write down five to ten things that are keeping you up at night. And you'll write down, let's say, seven things. And then I'll go to your leadership team, your direct reports, and I'll ask them without showing them the list. Hey, Ron wrote down seven things that's keeping them up at night. What do you think those are? And see if they can get all seven and have them do that without collaboration. And you'll quickly find that they don't have it. They may be a smaller business where it's closer. They get a better guess at it. But the larger businesses, and I'm not talking much larger, but $10 million and up, there's a miss here. There's not alignment between what the owner or the CEO is, is thinking about of the company and what the leaders are doing. And therefore, the execution, they're, they're working on things that aren't important to the owner. Although they may be important things, there's a big disconnect there. And then if you take that down one more level, there's no clarity there. So the planning is vital in that it really, there's so many companies that do strategic planning but it's an exercise to develop a plan to put on a shelf and it gets forgotten. The scaling up methodology, and I'm not trying to promote scaling up, but it, it doesn't let you do that. The methodology has your team looking at stuff every week. And so that's really productive. So you don't forget about what's important. And we share all that. So the planning teams do their stuff and they share those 
those visions, if you will, and those plans and goals with everybody in the company. It's not kept secret. And, uh, and that transparency is hard for some leaders, but it's important and it's fundamental. So that alignment aspect, I think, I see all the time as misalignment. I, I The other one that's cool is the whole, like, not everybody, the alignment thing. Um, I'm an honest believer in that that's the number one failure of most businesses, even in most relationships in general, right? I always joke around, like, what's the number one cause of divorce, right? And that's all about number one is marriage, right? You can't get divorced if you're not married. Number two, though, is, is failed expectations, right? The two individuals in a business or in a marriage or in any type of relationship set internal expectations of each other and failed, failed to communicate those and, and uh, work through them. Inside of a business, that's detrimental also because, you know, I could have a vision and have goals and have it all over the board. But if you don't know how I see us getting there and you got your own path to get there and the next guy comes along and he's got his own path on how he thinks to get there. And then the guys on the on, out, on front line are, are, are creating it and they don't know that we're all three steering three, three different directions to get to the to the to the same waypoint um it's just a it's confusing for everybody well it's unfortunate it doesn't have to be that way it's part of my engagement i ask my clients to do an anonymous survey yep. of all employees every one of them truck driver up to the ceo and three simple questions what do we start doing what do we yep. stop doing and what do we keep doing oh, yeah. and then i throw in the fourth and the fourth question is is there anything else you think we need to think about as a leadership team and the input is staggering. Um, and of all the companies scaling up worldwide clients, communication is the number one issue in most businesses. And I, I see that day in, day out. And the, the guys that are on the front line know what's going on. And if you're not asking for their input, you're missing opportunity. They, they can see things that executive teams can't see. They're just not working the day-to-day hands-on like that. They're, they're putting out other fires. So engaging the entire strat, our staff, I think is vital. And, and it's eye-opening. Every time I do that, um, two outcomes come from that. One is they're surprised at all the candid feedback. And they, they get frustrated because they've asked for that in the past, but they've not done it in an anonymous way. So they're, they're intimidated. And then the... Uh, the others are thankful. They they see what they, the feedback, and they don't like it at all. It can be very critical. It can be brutal, frankly. Um, but they should thank them for that, right? Because if those problems aren't surfaced, they're undermining lots of things in the company, including profitability and the ability to sell. It's funny. Uh, I started interviewing uh, some of the we got far, far enough along one of the due diligence is one of these companies. And I was interviewing some of the people that work there and, uh, they're, they started interviewing back and it was along the questions. Well, how well do you manage money? And that's, that was a weird question to ask me. And I was like, well, it's interesting. And like we've, you know, one of the guys come out and said, it, as a company, we've made tons of money and the owners just don't know how to manage money. They don't know how to manage cash flows, you know? Uh, like it was a marketing company and uh, they're like, if you know, 
we may if we make it a, a hell of a month and they'll go out and get new printers and you know color scan you know higher end scanners and like you know we got new gadgets and toys but uh you know then we're trying to push for numbers next month because we're, we're it's tight again and uh so yeah you'll learn a lot just by working with the employees and hey what's going and i do the same thing my, my favorite thing is what are we doing well you know what can we improve on and what do we totally miss like what are we just not doing at all we probably should take a look at same, and same uh, yeah same question just different phrasing and i do that almost if, to my smallest teams i do that on like mastermind calls, even like when I have mastermind, I still host some mastermind calls in different, you know, industries and stuff. And like, you know, at the end of the call, it's like, what do we do? Well, you know, what could we do better? And what do we just totally forget to do all, you know, that we probably should have. And, um, that question alone, if you just ask those of every single employee, I could get, I could get, you get a lot of results. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that maybe the company owners and stuff had tried 15 years ago and they just won't try again because they've done that already. And, you know, it didn't work last time because the market wasn't ready for it or it didn't work last time because the technology wasn't there to do it. And if they tried it again, it would be pretty easy. All right. There's a lot of that out there too. Yeah, there is. So, yeah. Let's talk about the uh, kind of the, like that succession planning and, you know, you and I both know the time frame it takes to really prepare a company for a successful, profitable exit. But let's let's go in. Let's let's talk about what goes into some of that uh, from a team perspective and from from your perspective as an advisor. You know how you walk somebody through that that preparation. Sure. Well, I uh, I distinguish succession planning from exit planning. Um, so the the leadership um, side of the business is the succession planning and the close exit is leaving the business. But um, I think the number one thing that buyers look at when they look at a business is the strength of the management team. Um, the business has to run without the founder or the CEO, day-to-day -day operator. Um, if anybody is in that mode, that's not by itself. If, if you're running a company and you're hands-on, and you don't have a lieutenant that can take the charge when you're away, that's a problem. That's not, that's the biggest detriment of selling a business because the, the buyers don't want to do that. Now, in rare cases, they have a management team in place. They can absorb it and that's all fine and good. But for the business sizes that I work with, which are generally under hundred million, that's not the case. And so the, the leader of the business has to be able to be free. Um, I'll ask, can you take off for a month and not have your cell phone and not panic? And the answer is generally no, no, and no. And, and that's indicative by itself. So succession planning to me is really developing your leadership team. Uh, whether you grow the leaders internally or you acquire them, you need a strong leadership team. It's just that fundamental. So that's, that's succession. On the, on the general exit planning, um, you know, it, it's years that just trying to get a general manager and I've helped several companies do that. Um, that's a very complex process and full of risk. It may not work out three years. In fact, I've got a client that has done this. They've gone up the hill two times now and it didn't work out. So the third time it's a female owner. She was burned. She was like, this isn't going to work. I'm going to be stuck with this business. It's like, no, you've got the right idea and the right plan. You just didn't get the right people. So let's tighten up how we define what the right people is, are. 
And so we did that. And she's now got an operations manager that's doing quite well and soon to be a successful general manager. But that by itself, she, she invested in one gentleman for three years. And that guy really didn't work out at all. And he knew it. She knew it. And he left. That set her back three years, literally. I mean, just day for day. So she had to start over, and she thought it'd be a five-year process. And that was four years ago at this point. And now she's trying to see if it's going to take another two or three years for this new gentleman to prove himself. So it's a long time. So succession planning and handing things off and having the right metrics, the KPIs, as you say, to give the guidance in terms of what is a healthy business, what tells us we're doing well or not doing well. All that's got to be in place. And if it's not, that takes time to put in place. And that's what drives, that's what drives the uh, challenge, if you will, for timing. You know, and it's um, if you're looking at the process of companies, it takes a different person to take a company from, you know, shoestring idea to that first, you know, benchmark of being profitable uh, all the way up to the first benchmark of, you know, um, having significant income, you know, seven figures. Um, it takes a different person, even from the seven figure mark to go beyond that. And a lot of small business owners, you know, just won't, don't see that. I had, I had a small business owner a few years ago. She came to me and, uh, unfortunately she's passed now, but you know, she got mad when she asked me a question and I answered it. Frankly, she said, where do you see this business in five years? I was like, exactly where it is now. Like, she almost like was how dare you i was like you're not willing to relinquish control get a you know an operator in here that can operate it and you know quite frankly you're a leader people love working here but you're not a very good operator you know on a day-to-day basis you're letting all kinds of things drop because it's got big enough you can't do it all yourself and you know she, she just wasn't that much that much of an orient you know she wasn't as organized as a, a real operator would be and you know, in my world, the operators are organized to the point where other people follow their organization because they see it, get it, and like it. They build systems, processes, and um, what when your leader is a leader, charismatic, people want to follow it, but she's just kind of all over the place. That's that's kind of what you attract. So um, it takes something to say, okay, well, I've got it to where it can go now, and if I wanted to go any further. I've got to have somebody with these skill sets because that's what it takes to go further. A lot of people just try to duplicate themselves. And I think that's a big mistake. Having somebody like you come in from an outside perspective and go, your skill set is great, but what we need to take it to the next level is your skill set plus X, Y, Z. That's a unique skill that a lot of times they need somebody from an outside perspective to, to even just see. It takes a humble person to do that too. How many, how many guys you, do you see out there? I mean, you just talk about an operator that failed. You know, I would almost suspect the reason it failed is she was trying to replace herself, right? She, she was finding somebody that had the characteristics she had. And realistically, the, the company needed some of that, but potentially needed much more in different areas. And, you know, that's why it's not going to work. You know, the reason you need to replace yourself is beyond the fact that you need more free time and stuff is the company might have also outgrown your current skills and your skill set and where you need to take it. I agree. That's not the case in her case. She's pretty dialed in on where her skills are and where they are not. 
and she's mindful of that. And I give her a lot of credit for that. Oh, cool. Yeah. So what else is out there? I mean, uh, uh, you, number one, don't be the main operator. Like if you're really thinking about a succession or an exit and especially in an exit, you know, if you're the main operator, you know, there's a lot of us that have out there on the acquisitions guys, the buyers, our job, number one goal is my number one rule is I don't buy myself another job. Right. Well, I think you touched on something else and that is the numbers. You know, you've got to have, as you said earlier, a dashboard or, or some way of gauging where the business is and where, mm-hmm. you know, what's vital. And it, again, back to the alignment, it needs to be aligned to some kind of strategy of what you can do well, not just do. I've got a client right now that um, they're very diversified and they think that's a big strength, but in their sales side of the business, they're thin. They don't have the right resources to cover all the different segments that they're trying to cover. And so they're not effective at generating revenue to support all, all four divisions, frankly. And that's a real problem for them. And they think it's like, well, all of this plays with our customers at some point. And I challenge them and ask, well, are you great at all four of these? Or are you just doing them because you think it's a value? And so trying to provoke them to think about, are we focused on what we do best? And what we make the most money at. There's a, um, you may have heard of the hedgehog concept by Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Venn diagram of three circles. One is, what are we best in the world at? And that really means that you you can put a guarantee behind it. You, you commit things to it. You, you know that you're the best. And then, what are we passionate about? What gives you energy? Not just things that you can do, but you got to believe in it. And then what's your economic engine? What really fuels your business? And, and those three question areas, if you will, or concepts, help you get a laser focus on what really drives the business. And that's another thing I, I don't see out there is people willing to sacrifice some aspect of their business um, because they're afraid they may lose revenue, but yet it's diluting them. And they don't see that because it's not visible to them. They just... It's just not there. There's nothing that's going to stand up and say, I'm not getting enough. So um, the numbers really have got to you know, be visible to the company. There's a company here in Missouri. I'm in St. Louis called Springfield Remanufacturing Company, SRC. It's the old uh, International Harvester Rebuilding Engine Rebuilding Company. And they're famous in that they are the birthplace of open book management. And Jack Stack is the CEO of that company, and he authored the book, The Great Game of Business. Yeah, I've, I've read that. It's really good. Yeah. Oh, it's a fascinating book. I'd encourage yeah. everybody to get that. It, it's basic. A lot of people are squeamish on open book management. I get it. I respect that fully. But there needs to be some clarity around that. So when somebody in, in, at the front line is doing something, they know how it impacts the business. And I... I just don't see that. I've, I've got a software company that in one of our board meetings or mastermind groups, um, the CEO said one day, he goes, I don't think my people know how things connect here at the company or how they connect to the overall system. And it's like, my God, you own that. You know, that's a real problem. I'm grateful that you're, you're thinking that way. What do you do about that? You know, so you need to figure out how people can measure their own effectiveness. How do they know if they had a good day or good week or a bad week? If there's no measure of that, 
you can't improve things that are broken. So I, I think the numbers are really fundamental that you've got to have a, a good handle on numbers and not just have KPIs because I've got companies that have KPI nausea, right? There's too many numbers and they're, yeah, not yeah. Actual, they're not meaningful. They're just there because they feel the need to have them, but they take a lot of time and energy to get those numbers. And if they're not actionable, then what value is it? So a lot of people I, I lose really, the, yeah. A lot of people lose the inside of the first phrase key performance indicators, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. And it, yeah. you know, I, I tell tell my team if you know I only, I only want to look about eight or ten things right if so if you're gonna put anything else on my on my little dashboard the rest of it has to come off something has to come off and then like they're not gonna take off you know revenue because they're all proud of what they got for the revenue they're not gonna take off you know certain things because you know the, uh, the ego won't allow them so it makes them really very cautious cautious about trying to add hey we need to see this now they can track things in their own departments and stuff but what I want to see are key things that indicate we're we're on track, we're hitting goals, and we are where we're supposed to be. And key key is key. A lot of people don't, you know, they start looking at, you know, eight to ten, and then the next thing they know, they're looking at fifteen to twenty, and the next thing they know, they got fifty data points, and it's a you know, they end up in this analysis paralysis and don't make decisions because they got all this data coming out of it, and most of it's not important. Right. Exactly. Let's go back to like the 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 foundations that you're talking about inside of scaling up and, you know, getting the company ready. We're talking about having the right, you know, having an operator there that's going to be there when, when the company's gone. Um, what are some of the other things you see as important? I know, I know what's on my mind, but what, what are the other elements that you see that take some time to prepare people need to start thinking about super early? Well, there's a lot there I, I can go. Um, I think on the people side, you really have to know, what constitutes a good fit for a given role and what the outcomes are, not the duties. Uh, just recently, I was speaking with a group of owners, clients, uh, about job descriptions and how outdated they are in today's world. And what I try to focus on is key accountabilities. What are the essential outcomes of the job that you're trying to hire this person for and let them go manage to those outcomes? Um, one of these gentlemen was... Debating, he, he knows that if you make, for example, 50 phone calls a day in the sales role, that it'll lead to so many conversions and it'll lead to so much business. Well, that may be true when you look at the math after the fact, but I can make 50 really bad phone calls or I can make five really good phone calls. It's the outcome. So it's this gentleman, and he, he's running a very successful business. He just, he's, he's an engineer, so he likes that measuring activities. And, and it's just built into his DNA, so it works for him. But I asked him, I said, why do you want that activity? Because I know if it does this, it'll lead to this. I said, okay, why is that important? Because if that happens, it'll lead to this, and I'll get my sales numbers hit. So, so why don't you just give them the sales number and say, hit this. If they don't, then go ask them, what are you doing to not hit the sales number? Yep. So the activity, you know, that whole um, I'm necessity, a I'll call it, of having the right definition for what's expected in each job. Every job in the company uh, will help get the right people in the right seat doing things right. And so I think that's really fundamental. And it, it starts with defining the job, and then it ripples through your interviewing process, your recruiting process, onboarding process. I heard a cute thing the other day. How much ROI is there in a retirement party as compared to ROI in a new hire, welcoming new hires? And it really mm -hmm. 
interesting concept. Step back into the what we were talking about earlier. You were, you know, talking about the right people and you know, like the knowing the path. You mentioned something inside of that. It's like I'm a big believer in we set the goals, you determine the path from the management team, right? And then there's a follow up that we set the goals, you define the path, right? Then I want you to document the path and the, and show the path to the to everybody that's reporting to you, but because uh, they're 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 to follow steps, you know, in 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 a, in a in a non-startup, right? In the startup environment where you're just trying to blaze a path and figure it out as you go, that's a whole different set of individuals. But when you're churning out widgets and you're, you've got a system to process, the management team, the way I like, you know, I think that the, the best, and correct me if I'm wrong here because I'm learning, um, is, you know, let's set the goals. You set the path and then define that path to everybody that's got to, you know, turn the widgets out. And, um, that seems to work a lot better than a, hey, cause I, I used to be the other way around. Like here's, here's the goal. Here's the steps I want you to take it to get there and then go tell your people. And then why am I, why am I hiring management if I'm doing that? Right. I'm hiring people who are intentionally more intelligent than myself. If I'm doing my job right in that realm. So let's set a goal together and uh, hopefully you'll elevate the goal. Cause I'll tell you, I can do X and like, why, why would you only do X? We could do X, Y, and Z too. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, after that goal is completed and both you know both parties agree upon it, the the path is you know the second tier, not the CEO. I honestly believe that the the, the path should be developed by the the operator operational managers out there that are that you brought in to, to grow the company. Well, I there's a couple of tools that I have, and both of them have the same intention, and that is in a functional level and in a process level, who has single point ownership of those. Mm-hmm. In many companies, there's not single point. There's multiple names. So if you take a list of functions or processes, and most companies don't have their processes even defined, who owns that? Who's the champion behind that? Yeah. And in a smaller company, the CEOs or, or the founders wearing multiple hats, and that's just the nature of the beast, and that's fine. The job there is to get them to wear less hats as they grow. But in a more developed company, that still exists. And so there's confusion on execution and, and who owns what. On the processes, it's cross-functional. So there's multiple departments involved with any given process. And if there's not a champion for that, then everyone expects somebody else to deal with it. So from a structural foundation point of view, Brian, I think it's vital that processes have to be defined in a company I wouldn't go so far as to say step one, two, three, four, because I think that stifles creativity. I'd rather give them guide rails and say, here's the goal and here's the parameters of which you can operate and go figure out a, a best way to get there. And if you learn something and find a better way, then let's do that. I, I grew up in the TQM world, total quality management, and continuous improvement is in my blood. And, and so I, I think you've got to have everybody in the company constantly challenging, why are we doing that? And, uh, and I think good growth and good ideas come from that. Uh, that's in the spirit of the start, stop, keep. Very few employers ask their employees their opinion. So um, there is lots of potential for um, building a stable company that is more valuable if you had your processes defined if there's single point accountability at the functional and process level, and that there's some parameters of flexibility in that. 
All right. So um, inside of that, like, how do how do they actually? I mean, what's the first step for them to get that done? I mean, there's a there's a we just you just unopen this huge can of <laughs> we can we could go do, but um, you, you're working with businesses right now. You you know the business comes in and they're thinking about like what is he going to do next? Whether it's succession planning, like you know what happens if something happens to me or they've already got something going on in their lives like look i need out in the next two to three years i need out in the next six months you know or whatever they the process is how do they get that that rolling how do they get the is it just capturing what's there already and documenting it you know going to the, the... yeah yeah and in terms of the process and systems and process context yeah. yeah i think it is i think you just go back to your team and you ask them to you said it you know document what you're doing you know, let's let's build the process. We don't have to create a sophisticated bureaucratic set of operating procedures, but just document the process, create a workflow around it. So if something happened and um, you've got a special talent and you're only one deep, which is another big problem in that talent, um, if they get hit by a speeding greyhound, you, you have nobody to carry on. So the processes are a risk mitigator. They help protect the business. And it helps as a training platform for the person coming into the business that would be a supplement to those resources. So I think you need to just document the process. I mentioned just a few minutes ago that most companies don't even know what the processes are. Right. And so just start there. It's a high level. There's, there's, you could get crazy with defining the processes. Well, we flip a switch. Well, that's not a process. Your accounts receivable, your business development. Your production, you know, those those are the processes, yeah. and, and how are they operating? And then take that down through the tiers in the company. And once you have that defined, you've got a, a repeatable way of running the business, and that's really fundamental. So, and it takes time to do that. I, I I heard you use the word process quite a bit in there, and it takes time to do that. That's there was a leading question because I kind of knew where I was going with this. I've actually had a, a couple different companies where we grew it, you know, kind of organically, just solving problems, solving problems. And then we got it fell into a groove of things were working and it was time to make those documentation. I found that most people are almost inept, like uh, almost incapable of documenting how they did something. Because when they sit down to do it, they start documenting how they think they should have done it or could do it or you know should be done, not what they actually do on a day-to-day basis. So the process that I've done with uh, the last one is I had somebody document their step-by-step process. Then I had somebody else sit there and watch them do the process and read, like read the steps that they said that they did while the guy actually did the process and then highlight things that didn't make sense because he wasn't doing what was on his own sheet. Right. Yeah. And then go back and have a discussion about it. And then try it, have the new guy try it exactly how it's documented and have the uh, guy that, you know, that was doing it really well oversee that. And, but that's just that process is both fascinating from a human psychology point of view is the, you know, why people don't just like I did step one, two, three, four, and what, what are they embellish and, 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 and leave things out sometimes. Um, it's, it is a process. It's, it's something that has to be gone through a couple times. And, uh, you know, the real trick is hand that to somebody that's never done it and say, here are the steps to do it and watch and see if they can actually get it from, from one end to the other, you know, without that, uh, 
Go ahead. No, I think you're, what you're highlighting to me at least is a validation process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does the process produce the same result? Uh, it goes back to my comment. Is it predictable? Is it repeatable? Um, and so I, I love your idea of having somebody else take it and walk through it and they, they get stuck on step four and yeah. you're out of 20. And so that's no good. Another thing I ask people to do, and I'm not a process engineer. I mean, there's experts out there that should guide these companies on this kind of stuff. But um, if I could teach you something, I probably know it pretty well, right? If I can't, I probably don't. And so I'll challenge my clients to have their employees document their process and then teach it to the rest of the team or to some other employee. If they can do that, they've demonstrated that they have been thoughtful about it, they've gone through it, and that will reveal whether or not it's understood. Because they'll get stopped. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me, kind of thing. Yeah. I uh, love the so. teaching aspect. I think you can learn a lot by teaching others. Yeah. Um, in the, I had a real estate investment group where we actually taught real estate investors. And after a couple of classes, you would find that we would make some of the students stand up and teach it. Like when they repeated a class, like evaluating the value of a company, right? Our company, a, a, a real piece of real estate, uh, you know, running comps and all that. We had the students teaching it by class two or three. And That's the reason awesome. is, is to, to have them get up and teach what we taught them really demonstrates the ability for them to, to, to know that they know it and the confidence that they know it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, whatever I was referring to earlier as far as systems and processes is there's, there's just, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's something to documenting what's already there and then the validation of what you're referring to is like, does that documentation work? Can somebody else pick it up and run with it and make it work? We're getting close to the top of the hour now. I've asked a lot of questions and I just want to make sure I've asked like what you, what you wanted to cover. So out of all the questions I've asked, what should I have asked? Is there something I've missed? Is there something that's really important we should talk about for the last few minutes? Uh, that's another wide open question, Ron. What comes to my mind is back to the people side of things. Uh, mm -hmm. I hate to keep going back to that, but it's, again, without people, nothing happens. Um, I believe deeply in that a company has to have a set of core values that are real and that are alive in the organization. Um, and I call those you know, rules of engagement, if you will, that if you behave this way, that align our handful, four, maybe five core values. Morningstar, a giant company on the West Coast, they have one core value. Do what you say you're going to do, which is phenomenal. Um, pretty easy to measure that by. And um, so the core values and having a, a, a clarity about the purpose of the business, where you can get people that are excited about your business on your bus versus people that just want a job. And that distinction by itself can really make a huge impact on the business. I've got way too many clients they have people that are on their staff that they have a special skill or they've been there a long time or whatever reason, they're afraid to let them thrive elsewhere. It's really holding the company back and uh, they're tolerating behaviors that they normally would not tolerate. Um, I, it's a hostage situation almost. So I think a company really needs to be clear about their core values and not customer facing. Those are brand values to me, but, what I'm talking about are behaviors that are expected and, and disciplined in the company. And I don't mean that in a, in a critical sense. I mean that they're real. If you behave this way, we're getting along. If you don't behave this way, you can't play with us. You're just yeah. not, not going to get along. 
and that's so disruptive in a company. So um, my, with all of my clients, I start with core values as a foundation as to how are you operating, how's your execution, how's your profitability. A really good question is, are you operating without drama? And the answer to that generally in most companies is, oh, no, no, we've, we've got drama. And that's because behaviors are not being uh, managed properly. And, and it's not an easy thing to do. And it no. could take quite a bit of time to come up with the proper core values. And they're not just words to put on a T-shirt or a poster or website. Uh, it's anything but that. It's a, it's a real serious set of operating principles for the employees. I'm not a believer that everybody needs to get along. I don't believe that at all. I believe that even to the extent to what that guy did, I think if it was dialed down just a notch or two, was healthy to the organization just because sometimes if everybody's complacent and trying to get along and it's a well-ordered machine, when something is slightly off and nobody just wants to say it, they're being too nice to each other, that's not healthy either. There, You know... You know, I won't say the guy's name. I don't know if he's even still alive. I've been out of that industry for 20-something years, and he was older than me. But, uh, you know, out of respect, I won't say his name. But you know when he said something, it was actually wrong, right? The guy was actually smart. And you maybe there's two things, right? There's the, uh, you call it the, uh, there's a name for it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to think of it for a second. But there's a there's a name in it, in a, in a in a setting, in a psychological setting where everybody knows somebody else is going to say something. So they don't. Right. Maybe. The, yeah. The, uh, there's a halo effect. We all kind of like, we're going to be the angels because we know the devil's sitting over and he's not, he's not going to let this go. But so had he not been in the room with the problem that had been addressed, probably, but there's not, I honestly think some level of that, that, not, I hate the word drama, but some level of drama inside of an organization is actually healthy. I totally agree, agree yeah. with you, Ron. So maybe I mischaracterized that. But right. um, I think it's fundamental for a healthy debate. Um, yeah. When I say get along, I mean, you're treating each other with respect, you know, the golden rule, if you will, and, and you're doing what's expected of you. And core values are nothing other than the, the most non-negotiable expectations as an employee. And there's right. a hand for them. So when I talk about that, um, I, I tend to be, uh, I like to scrap. So I like to get into a debate and have a robust conversation. That's just part of my makeup. And yeah. I encourage that with my clients. In fact, in the planning sessions, I start off with that. It's like, if you guys are going to sit here and just wait for other people to talk, we're not going to get very far with this. So yeah. you have, it, you may have the best idea. And if you're intimidated or shy about bringing that up, all of us lose. So I couldn't agree more with you that some level of debate and conflict is very healthy. But at some point, there's a continuum where you reach a tipping point, it becomes personal. Right. And that's what that's where it gets unhealthy. Yeah, I've had people, uh, good friends even, they're like, we're on the phone and they're talking about how bad an employee is. And I'm like, well, why don't you just let him go? Well, he does this, this, and this, and this. Or, you know, I've had even people go, well, he was here when I got here. I was like, yeah, but you're his boss. It doesn't matter. Like, well, he knows everything about the system. The only one, right? They, uh, there's some fear of letting something go just because they, you know, I don't know. I've seen people hold on to so many toxic employees. I honestly believe there's no such thing as a bad employee. Some of them would just be better employees flipping burgers for somebody or, or doing something other than being an employee for me. But uh, there's no such thing as a bad one. It's just sometimes it's, you know, 
bad for you in the moment. Yeah, I um, I have a motto: hire fast, uh, fire fast, hire slow. Excuse me. Yeah. Fire fast, yeah. hire slow. And yep. um, and you, you you know the reality is, uh, and this happens all the time in my circles. Mm-hmm. The spouse's husband moves, right? Your employee's spouse moves, and they move with them. And you just mm-hmm. lost a great employee, and they were this employee that you couldn't lose yeah. because you were afraid of firing them. Well, they're controlling that scenario, not you. And so I encourage my clients to don't be afraid of that because they can come in and their life could change and come in and change your life. And now you have to react to that in a panic state instead of being proactive about that and dealing with the tough issue of replacing an employee. I mean, nobody likes to do that. I'm not naive about that. But for the health of the business and every other employee, that's the responsibility of leadership. Um, I appreciate your comment about there are no bad employees. I, I think if you have a bad employee, there was some failure along the way of hiring or mentoring or developing that employee. It wasn't the employee's fault. It was you didn't hire or treat the right guy or the guy right. Well, we're above the top of the hour. We're going to have to call the show here. Let's make sure everybody knows how to get a hold of you, man. Uh, uh, I have it up on the screen. Um, Why don't you tell everybody the best way you want people to reach out to you? Uh, Probably my email, and that is bgleason uh, at kelsey-group.com. So bgleason at kelsey-group.com. Cool. I think I have that in the show notes. If not, I'll add it to the show notes. Uh, people will be able to reach out to you that way. And uh, you have any uh, big ask out there? Is there anything you'd love uh, for, you know, what can myself or the audience do to help you out? Well, great question. Uh, I can't think of anything other than um, if you've got a, a burning question that you are wrestling with, um, reach out to me. Maybe I can help. And if you've got something very creative that You've heard this conversation. You've got some solutions to it that you've experienced. Share it with me, and I'll share it with other business owners, and you can impact the life of others. So, Awesome. We'll do that. I appreciate your time. Uh, hang out for a second when the show ends, and we'll chat for a few seconds, and we'll have it done here. That's the I show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.